It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Happy Monday, folks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio. I'm in New York today where we had a very special exclusive interview with Jason Greenblatt. He is one of the architects behind President Trump and Jared Kushner's peace plan for the Middle East. I will bring you that exclusive interview which aired earlier today on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, plus the latest on U.S.-China trade policy and the fallout from the Iowa State Fair. No, I'm not just talking about all the good food that I didn't get to eat down at Zombie Burger in Des Moines. We have an all-star panel to help us walk through all of this. Max Burns is back. He is Democratic strategist and senior contributor at Millennial Politics. Hagar Kamali is here. She is the CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies and former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. It's a beautiful day here in New York. It's a beautiful day down in Washington. And it was a beautiful day over the weekend at the Iowa State Fair. I wasn't there and I was jealous of all of my colleagues who were getting to eat fried butter and fried Oreos and fried zombie burgers. You know, everything fried. That's where Kev loves to be. That's why I'm so grateful to have an all-star panel to walk us through a very important political weekend for the crowded Democratic presidential field. Max Burns, is a Democratic strategist, senior contributor at Millennial Politics. Hagar Shamali is CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. Max, who who won the Iowa State Fair? Uh, definitely not Bill de Blasio. He managed to get <laughs> 0% in the corn kernel straw poll. The corn kernel straw poll. Go ahead. He was enjoying that corn dog, though. The picture of him eating the corn dog. I wish I could accept failure as gracefully as Bill de Blasio. That's brutal. <laughs> but I'm an optimist. Maybe he won. Go ahead. It is interesting, though, to see sort of the, the jovial, fun nature of the Iowa State Fair uh, countered against the actual heavy stuff that candidates are talking about gun safety white supremacy terrorism uh and and it really has shifted sort of the tone of the entire event towards a more somber proceeding you know i i was struck by this hagar just to see just how it's a max's point just how much gun control has really emerged as one of the key issues but i don't 
really feel that there's any difference on behalf of the candidates on the issue. Right. You know, I'm I'm speaking from a unique perspective because I'm from Connecticut. Ooh. And so those of us in Connecticut, after Sandy Hook, all kind of felt that once children were the targets of gun violence and nothing happened, that once once people accepted that as the new normal, that nothing was really going to change. Now, that said, there are a lot in, there are a ton of activists in Connecticut and they do amazing work. And I have some hope, but the hope that I have is really for small steps like background checks where really we need to go way beyond that at this point. You know, I was struck by this, but uh, yeah, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Max Burns says that, that they're going to take up they're going to take up uh, some of these issues when lawmakers return back for recess, you know, on Friday, and I want to balance it out here on Friday, we were, we were talking about the gaffes of Joe Biden, the former vice president and the gaffes that he stumbled over. And, and quite honestly, I think we in the media just obsess, obsess, obsess over gaffe after gaffe on both sides and we stay away from the policy. So I want to play what Biden had to say about the second amendment uh, from over the weekend uh, because he told reporters, uh, well, I'll, I'll play it. I'll play what he had to say. Here, here's Joe Biden. I watched what happened when the kids from Parkland marched up to, and I, 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 I met with them, and then they went off to up on the hill when I was vice president. They went off the hill to go into those neighborhoods. All those congressmen were like, no, I'm not here. I'm not here. I, I'm not, don't, don't tell them I'm around. So it was another gaffe because he wasn't in office when Parkland happened. Yeah, I mean, confusing Parkland and Newtown, confusing the cities where these three mass shootings happened. It's not so much any individual instance of misspeaking that's concerning. It's that uh, this is a repeated trend and that he just seems a little bit behind the other candidates, not just in sort of personalizing this issue, but in, in actually pushing forward beyond just background checks and red flag laws and, and all those yeah, I you know, I actually we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. I, I'm a big fan personally of Vice President Biden. I worked with him when I was at the White House. Now, granted, that was on Middle East issues. However, um, I just I, I've always thought he was shrewd, always thought he was nice. But on it, with these elections, I just kind of figured that he would be ahead of the game. And a lot of polling says that. But personally, when I see his communications, when I see his public um, persona, it just feels like he's in a little bit of a funk. Yeah, funk is, is, is one word for it. <laughs> um, but it's not making a difference in the polls. And that's the one thing. I mean, he right. is the front runner. So of course we are, are all talking about him. If he was not the front runner, then we wouldn't be talking about it. And it would be like, well, you know, I mean, so that, that's the, the, I guess the, the catch 22 of being, having the most name recognition, having the most money is that everyone, you know, you're King of the Hill. Uh, and so leader of the pack. And so, you know, how far can he keep that? We just don't know. I, I want to dive a little bit more into the strategic uh, arm of this and coming up, we'll dive into policy. But uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, both hovering at two and three in the polls, respectively, you know, number one, they're going after the same boat. Number two, they're both switching to New Hampshire. And I find this fascinating because they're actually targeting upstate New Hampshire. And that's where if you're familiar with the geographic landscape here, that's where a lot of voters who were deciding between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in the last cycle, that's where a lot of them live. So I'm interested to see how something like uh, the gun control debate Max Burns plays in upstate New Hampshire, uh, where Warren and Sanders are going to be competing for, for the same vote. 
And I'm interested to see how, how Elizabeth Warren plays in New Hampshire. She's always had a bit of a struggle there. There's like a Massachusetts rivalry in New Hampshire. Well, where no one the, likes the Patriots. Who does? I mean, it's just patriotism. Max, you don't like the Patriots either? <laughs> I'm not a fan of the Patriots. But I'm from Southern oh, Connecticut. We're, we're Giants fans. Well, that's... And Yankees. That's okay. Go Yankees. All right. Well, go Eagles, number one. Number two, go Phillies. And I'm actually a DC United fan. I was at DC United last night. Focus, Kev. Go ahead, Max. <laughs> but it, it is fascinating that uh, Bernie Sanders, who has did so well in 2016 and sort of changing the entire agenda of the Democratic Party, is just not catching fire the same way now. And I think it's in large part because uh, the individuals he inspired to step forward, like Elizabeth Warren, have become better messengers of that economic message than Bernie Sanders. Well, has. I mean, I think Bernie Sanders supporters and staffers would disagree with you, and he is still as a very formidable campaign. But I would point out, Hagar, and I'm interested in, in your take here. I think Senator Warren has really ingrained herself in the apparatus of the Democratic Party. Well, Alf, I find that, well, first of all, she has performed very well, yeah. personally, in my opinion, at the, at the debates. Um, she performed very well at both debates. She's been, you know, out there at every chance she can get. She's a very good speaker. She's very eloquent and she she's very um, she's concise and she still keeps it to policy. Right. So so there's been that. And I find even myself now for me personally, she's too far left. Um, on the spectrum. But I find myself when I watch her to be quite compelling. Yeah. That being said, then when I really, when I read her policies, you know, they make me, for me at least, they make me a little bit concerned. And then it makes me wonder as well if you end up where um, Elizabeth Warren is the last woman standing versus President Trump. It, I really, I don't know how it would go. It's really hard to say. I want to put an end point on this uh, uh, conversation. And then coming up, we're going to talk policy and we're going to switch to the Middle East and, and national security. But for for Joe Biden, uh, you know, I, I think how do you how do you bust through this? Because candidly, I talked to a lot of Democratic strategists who are like, just let him go. I mean, like if, if the whole argument is that the American people, that the electorate understands what he's trying to say, that he's being handled. Let Joe be Joe. Right. I mean, you know, that may have worked before. Um I actually, I would, like I said, I really assumed that when he was going to start, he was just going to kind of crowd everyone out. Everybody would have been shadowed. Um, everybody would have been behind his shadow and that he would have given his background and his history. He would have kind of taken over. Um, and I know a lot of Republicans, certainly in Connecticut, who support him. And I think that's because he's more toward the center compared to the other candidates. Right. Um, and he's established. And so I just kind of assumed that that he would come out as a front runner. But Joe being Joe has not been working. And even when Joe's being Joe, when he apologizes, for example, for things that were said in the past or things that were different or him changing his mind, which from a communications perspective, I know I always advise people, you know, be out there and apologize. Be the first to own to your own up to your mistakes. People are receptive to that. It's just not really working with him. Interesting. All right. Panel stays coming up. An exclusive interview with Jason Greenblatt. He is an assistant to President Donald Trump. He is the architect behind the Trump administration and Jared Kushner's Middle East peace plan. You don't want to miss this interview. You can download the sound on podcast, the Bloomberg sound on podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. You can also find me on iHeartRadio, Radio.com and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Panel stays. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. It is a beautiful 
beautiful day, to quote my one of my all-time favorite songs by one of my all-time favorite bands, U2, here in New York City. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I'm not in Washington today. I'm in New York because of an exclusive interview that we did with Jason Greenblatt. He is special representative for international negotiations for the Trump administration. Jason is one of the architects, along with Jared Kushner, behind President Trump's U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian peace plan that they are hammering away details on. Now, Jason Greenblatt also uh, has been working for Donald Trump since, I believe, 1997. He was one of the president's chief legal legal advisors uh, at the Trump organization and uh, Donald Trump's Israeli advisor, even back uh, during his time at the Trump organization. So he came into Bloomberg headquarters today uh, and we did the interview on policy regarding uh, where the negotiation stands. So take a listen to my interview earlier today in New York with Jason Greenblatt. Here it is. Earlier today, you tweeted out that Palestine is receiving, quote unquote, a raw deal with regards to how Iran has treated them. You tweeted that in response to the Iranian foreign minister, Zarif. It comes following a Fox News op-ed in which you said that Israeli-Palestinian peace would be Iran's, quote-unquote, worst nightmare. Why is that? Iran and other bad actors in the region use the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to light up the streets. They need to have conflict for their regimes to keep their people happy. It's very unfortunate. They uh, light up the streets in Gaza. The Hamas is being funded by Iran. They don't give a lot of money, but they give enough to keep Hamas happy. Hamas then subjugates nearly 2 million Palestinians. And uh, we are aware that they could be a huge spoiler, and we hope to figure out how to prevent that from happening because the Palestinian people deserve better than Iran trying to hurt them. The Palestinians, for their part, have largely boycotted the Trump administration since the Jerusalem embassy decision. Have you managed to get them back to the table at all? The Palestinian leadership has Correct. boycotted us. The Palestinian people have not. We continue to engage far and wide with everyday Palestinians who, even if they disagree with our policies, are deeply interested in what we're trying to do. If you think about the Bahrain conference, for example, uh, the Bahrain workshop, over 1.2 million people downloaded Jared Kushner's uh, business plan for the Palestinian people. There is deep interest in what we're doing among ordinary Palestinians. When you talk to those Palestinian, in some case leaders, not the, the exact leadership, do any of them serve as intermediaries with Palestinian leadership? There's no official uh, contact between us and the Palestinian Authority and certainly not with Hamas. We can't forget that Palestinian leadership is divided between two organizations. Uh, many of them say that they have contacts and go back to the Palestinian leadership, but we view them all as private citizens interested in helping the Palestinian people not people who come with official messages. Ultimately, do you think you need them at the negotiation table in order to get a deal? I'll answer in two ways. On the Palestinian Authority side, absolutely. We are not looking for a regime change. President Abbas is the leader of the Palestinians, and we hope that he will be able to come to the table. On the Hamas side, as Hamas exists today with its vow to destroy Israel, shooting hundreds of rockets, killing Israelis, uh, causing Palestinians to go to the border to try to create trouble, that's a different story. But we do hope to have continued engagement or uh, an eventual re-engagement with the Palestinian Authority. Do you think Egypt, Saudi Arabia, do they play a role in helping to get that engagement? 
I think all of the region will play a role or needs to play a role, and each country has their own national interests to worry about. So we hope that there'll be positive engagement, but we're also not going to push any of our allies and friends like Saudi, like Egypt, like Jordan, and so on, into doing something that doesn't make sense for them. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Three weeks ago, just about three weeks, three weeks ago, you spoke at the United Nations. It was a speech that was widely dissected, uh, praised, criticized. Uh, one of the things that you said in the speech, quote, international consensus is too often nothing more than a mask for inaction. In the same speech, you said, quote, international consensus is not international law. Several U.S. allies criticized that, including Germany, for example, what did you mean by those remarks? I meant exactly what I said, and you know, I've responded to the German ambassador who made, uh, who distorted, in my view, our message. There is no international consensus about this conflict. There's no international consensus about Jerusalem. Clearly, the United States stands apart when President Trump made his bold and courageous and historic decision, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. Much of the world disagreed. We couldn't even get an international consensus to condemn Hamas as a terrorist organization. So. For people to suggest that there's an international consensus on this conflict is misleading and it's wrong. Um, and international law or the UN resolutions about the conflict are vague. They do not read, lead to a roadmap on how to resolve the conflict. We think the speech was um, groundbreaking in its message. Some people have distorted it to say that it was Jason Greenblatt. It wasn't Jason Greenblatt. This was a U.S. speech. It was cleared by all the relevant agencies. And we think an important message for the Security Council and the UN generally to have heard. And let me let me press you on this because one of the criticisms was if if you don't need international consensus, what message does that send potentially to foreign adversaries, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, in terms of their uh, in terms of other issues? If if the U.S. isn't respecting international consensus, why should Russia? Why should China? So we're not saying that international consensus and international law doesn't exist for other issues. Mm. What we did say is on this particular issue. They don't exist. More so, this conflict will only be resolved by direct negotiations between the parties. It's not for the United States or the European Union or the United Nations to demand how this conflict could be resolved. Only the two sides who live there, who worship there, who die there, who put their lives on the line, they're the ones that have to figure out what the compromises might be or could be to resolve the conflict. We can't demand it of anybody. You said that uh, in the speech, you said that uh, it is true that the PLO and the Palestinian Authority continue to assert that East Jerusalem must be a capital for the Palestinians, but let's remember an aspiration is not a right. Do you believe that there's room for a Palestinian capital in Jerusalem? 
it's going to be up to the two sides. We're not going to take a position. When President Trump made his uh, historic announcement, he did say that the specific final boundaries of Jerusalem will be up to the two sides to negotiate. We stand by that, and uh, it isn't for anyone else to demand of Israel or the Palestinians what that might be. You just had that that summit meeting conference, and and uh, do you think so to roll out the economic side of this in Bahrain? Do you think you'll have another one uh, to roll out a, a more formal type of peace proposal? Is that in the works? So the president hasn't decided when to roll it out yet. We obviously have the second Israeli elections coming up in mm-hmm. September. Following that, a government formation process, and the president will have to decide soon if he wants to roll out the peace effort or the peace vision prior to the election or after the election, and if after the election, uh, does he wait for the government coalition to be formed, and no decision has been made yet. Let me follow up on the on the Israeli elections. Is the U.S. trying to encourage a unity government in Israel where uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would join the center-left parties? No, we don't get involved in other governments' uh, election process. And as long as Netanyahu pairs up with the right-wing parties, will it be hard to get a deal going? I think it's going to be hard to get a deal going on all sides. And I think when we see when people see the plan, there will be heavy criticism all around, Israelis, Palestinians, Europeans, everybody. There's no deal that we could put on the table that everybody will say, wow, how did you figure out what nobody has figured out before? We recognize that. But what we think we are putting down is something that despite the hard compromises, makes sense for everybody. We hope that the two sides will look at it in good faith and say, you know what, despite the hard compromises, we think this makes sense. We think it's worth sitting down at the table together and seeing if we could finally get through and break through to the end of this conflict. That was Jason Greenblatt, Special Representative for International Negotiations for the Trump Administration. And coming up, our panel is going to react. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on iHeartRadio, Radio.com, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Luck is a matter of preparation meeting opportunity. Oprah Winfrey, I'm staring at the Bloomberg terminal, and that quote is literally staring me here in the face. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm broadcasting from New York because today because of that interview that we did with Jason Greenblatt, Special Representative for International Negotiations for the Trump Administration. Uh, here with us in studio, Max Burns. He's a Democratic strategist. He's also at Millennial Politics. And Hagar Shamali, she is uh, uh, the CEO and president of Greenwich Strategy. She also served at the Treasury Department in financial uh, terror. I'm jumbling the words financial terrorism. You woke up early today. Yeah, you know? it's terrorism and financial intelligence. Terrorism and financial intelligence. Uh-huh. It's literally right in front of me, but I was <laughs> trying to to use. All right, so you listen to Jason. Your thoughts. Um, listen, I thought, you know, I thought it was a great interview. He holds his cards close. We're still trying to figure out when they're going to roll out this peace plan. And I think, you know, given an election, at least certainly when I was in the government, a plan like this would never have been rolled out before an election because you don't want to be accused of meddling in the election in any way. You're talking about the Israeli elections. Yes, sorry. The Israeli elections coming up in September. And just to clarify for our audience, which administration did you serve in? I served, um, I was a civil servant actually for a very long time. And then I served in the Obama administration politically as the spokesperson at Treasury, like you said, and spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the United Nations. This was my last I know that, but I wanted our audience to know that. So your point is, 
it's interesting that they're even considering rolling out the plan ahead of Right. The Netanyahu election. Right. I mean, I, th- I don't I mean, exactly. I think it's normal for them to hold to hold it back until those elections are over. Um, and it would be normal for them to say that. Um, but anyway, other than that, I thought his points about the United Nations were very interesting, having having worked in that world. Um, I personally I can't see I, I also can't see the U.N taking a lead role. This is hard for me to say, by the way. I'm very pro-UN. I know. You were but, talking to me on the break. I was like, just get it out. You know, it's you just, it, it is what it is. Us. It's I, I believe in the UN. We need the UN. It's it's failing at its mission and achieving its mission. And he's not wrong when he says that there have been numerous resolutions for over half a century so, that have done nothing to advance this issue. It's like, here we are. They've had thousands of years to straighten it out. Mm-hmm. They haven't been able to. The Trump administration's trying. Right. You know, I'm struck by what you said, Hagar, because, you know, I, I just, and having covered Trump since the escalator, essentially, and kind of watched the strategic of this, the strategicness of this, it's always a senior advisor, for lack of a better term, who tests the message. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. speech at the United Nations three weeks ago, where he where Jason Greenblatt said to the United Nations that an aspiration is not a right and that, right. Uh, you know, that, that there's inaction mm-hmm. or that, that consensus is not law. International consensus is not law. All I kept thinking, I told you this in the break, when president right. Trump goes to the United Nations in September, you don't think he's going to just to echo that? I no. I think, I think you're right. I think he's going to take that and he's going to amplify it further. You know, I thought it was so interesting. T- I want to just quickly interrupt though, is come September, if that's the time of the, the elections for, for Netanyahu. So let's just gauge the month of September. Mm-hmm. You've got Beijing coming to the U.S. to negotiate. Mm-hmm. You've got Congress coming back to take up gun control. And oh yeah, Trump's at the U.N. and the Israeli elections and there could be a rollout. Wow. Right. There's a Gosh, lot going I'm gonna on. Sleep on the I'm sure tonight. something will happen with Iran. I mean, it's yeah. a lot going on. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, I think this the the message coming from this administration about the validity of international consensus as international law, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but I thought, you know, what he's trying to say is, number one, consensus at the UN is almost impossible, is impossible to get. Um, and that's because every member there is there for their own interests and their own agenda. So if they're waiting for international consensus on anything on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, they're going to be waiting forever. So he's right on that. He's right that that's not the point. He was right about pointing out the rhetoric at the UN. It is constant rhetoric. It's a lot of talk. It's very little action when it comes to the UN Security Council. That's been super prevalent this past year, certainly with Russia in, in you know, vetoing numerous resolutions. Um, so, you know, I, I can understand that message. I can appreciate it. Coming from this administration, though, they need to be, you know, they need to be careful. They need to explain where they're coming from on this. I think it would be, it would behoove them to say, you know how the UN could do better, you know, in this way. And I actually think Nikki Haley did a good job of that. Yeah. I mean, she went in there Yes, she represented this administration, but she went in there with the mindset of, okay, how can I maneuver this big body with its all of its dysfunctions and its bureaucracy to try and achieve certain outcomes? And she did that with North Korea resolutions, for example. Max Mertz, come in here. I think this is when you look at uh, how Greenblatt spoke so bluntly in a way that is just not done at the yeah. UN. <laughs> uh, this is, in my opinion, more of a severe swing uh, that represents more of a traditional trend Whenever Europe tends to weaken and is divided, we see America kind of step up and assert itself on the international stage. The challenge isn't that anything Greenblatt said is really wrong. 
It's that mm -hmm. the president doesn't really have a lot of credibility here to point at domestic or international victories and say, we're the ones to fix this. Uh, yeah, it's a, just a, it's such a challenge to go into a body and point out correctly that uh, things have been worded ambiguously, that action hasn't been taken for 50, 60 years, but then to not be able to point to any actual peacemaking or mm -hmm. coalition building you've done uh, while asking for more authority is... Well, they is, would put... I mean, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, to Max's point, actually, he, you, you know, you mentioned the Europeans, and it's the reason why the German ambassador... I mean, I believe I can't speak for him, but the reason why I think huh. the German ambassador attacked um, Greenblatt's July 23rd speech at the UN um, is because of the lack on the part of the Trump administration to work with the Europeans on this very issue and the moving of the embassy and the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital is the perfect example of that. It's not necessarily, those moves were not necessarily wrong at all, but you know, there is a reason you work with your allies and your friends and your partners. And on I this. would just say that when I talked to, to sources in the Trump administration, they say, well, where was Europe with North Korea? Where was Europe with Huawei? Right. Where was Europe with Iran mm -hmm. and energy regarding Iran? So, I mean, the te I mean, you know, there are issues that used to be, as you know better than anyone, Hagar Shamali, having served in, in different administrations and on both sides, that they used to be there were issues of, of consensus. Mm -hmm. And it's like everyone sort of, you know, isn't really doing that. Coming up, we're going to talk more politics and policy with Hikar Shmali, Max Burns, and I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent from Bloomberg Television. Bloomberg Radio, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Radio.com. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. I'm in New York City today. We were doing some, uh, we did an interview with Jason Greenblatt. He's negotiating the Trump administration's U.S.-Palestinian-Israeli peace talk. Still no word on a timeline, but we're trying to get to something. We've got two all-stars here my new york friends every time i come to new york i'm like oh i get to see max burns democratic strategist millennial project and of course hagar shamali Hagar's going to be on with me on thursday yep. in dc because mm -hmm. you're going to dc Hagar's the president and ceo of greenwich media strategy she previously served at the treasury department in the financial terrorism risk Terrorism. <laughs> that just sounds like financing terrorism. terrorism and financial intelligence. <laughs> I just say it now. I just now I'm just doing it to 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 mess not mess with you, but to, to be funny. I'm not trying to be funny. I apologize. Um, Hagar, uh, what's on your radar? I'm I'm actually I'm following the Venezuela issue really yeah. closely. Um, Venezuela and Iran, but let's talk about Venezuela because. Last week, the president issued an executive order. Now I'm going to get a little sanctions nerd yeah, on you. Okay. Um, issued I'd an executive order. Yeah, it's where we live here. Yes. Um, uh, so he issued an executive order that uh, imposed a freeze on all Venezuelan government property in the United States. We had John Pence on, the nephew of the vice president, uh, on last week to talk about this. So oh, our, yeah. our, our audience knows. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, good. When it bars American transactions with the Venezuelan government. And at the time, there was a lot. I mean, a lot of the media hype about it was that this was an embargo, which it does not constitute an embargo. And I and I can talk at length about that, having worked in sanctions for a very long time. But it's just it's not an uncommon measure that the U.S. government takes 
when they really want to isolate governments further. So they did it, for example, against Syria during the height of the Syria crisis, um, certainly Iran and North Korea. So it puts Venezuela on the same level as as those other uh, governments. I that- want to underscore this. I want to yeah. highlight it, tweet it out, bold it. Yeah. What they did was put Venezuela on the same level as Iran. Yeah, and Syria wow. and North Korea. Wow. The, no, no, the Venezuela government. Correct. Yeah, and 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 that was the idea was to target the, the government regime. specifically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what they're doing is saying, you know, now listen, I don't think there are a lot of U.S. persons really doing business with the Venezuelan government to begin with. But for those who might be, those who are con- contemplating doing it, or for those who might be interested in doing business with another entity or another person that does business with the Venezuelan government, they're now going to think twice. And that's the message that the White House and the Treasury Department are trying to convey. What is it, Chevy? Or what's the auto? The auto Chevy has has a big plant. Correct? Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's I mean, what I read that. that. Yeah. With Chevy. Yeah, I, th- I mean, th- this is going to have an effect for sure. Um, you're not going to see it as much give you know there's not going to be as much collateral damage as people would expect with a quote-unquote embargo but that's because this isn't an embargo um you know the the situation sanctions in venezuela have sanctions against venezuela have certainly exacerbated the situation on the ground in terms of the economic situation for venezuelan citizens but the situation is really homegrown i mean the the lack of electricity the lack of jobs i mean this the corruption certainly this is all led by and and, and exacerbated by nicolas maduro you know and i always say i mean you talk about the immigration crisis that we're talking about uh virtually every day i mean the the refugee crisis oh in venezuela i mean it's people, three million people in colombia right now i think wow. it's from venezuela it's a it's an and enormous it's, amount it's, they're not going anywhere right the problem's not going anywhere it, it's going to outlast the trump administration it predated the trump administration mm-hmm. but it's something that policymakers in the united states are going to have to are going to have to grapple with for a very long time max right. burns what's on your radar i am watching the trump china tariff temper tantrum really closely especially same that in the last couple <laughs> I think it's of like weeks, the first show in like a month where we didn't lead with it go ahead and it's everything i think that quite honestly president trump didn't anticipate china just cutting off agriculture imports uh, I think it's starting to really hurt him in the heartland. Uh, people are losing contracts for their crops that are not going to come back, even if this trade war winds up. We went from sort of mission accomplished, trade wars are easy to win, to the middle of Vietnam. And this- You're not compared. Wait, 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 wait. This is, this is a quagmire that is not going to end for a while. This trade war is going to get worse and there is no there is no evidence to me or increasingly to moderate people on the Hill that the president has a strategy for what he even wants out of this. And as as that starts to bite into the pocketbooks of farmers, that's going to sap the Republicans ability to farmers. push on I every mean, other back issue. Back to school shopping, the price of crowns. I mean, yeah. seriously, I mean, this is where the average consumer then after back to school, it's holiday season. So a lot of businesses having to forecast that into what I want to know. And this is what I'm like. I can't wait for September 12th in Houston at the third Democratic presidential debate. Number one, if there's going to be two nights. Number two is if finally they're going to talk about the economy and they're going to talk about whether mm-hmm. or not Sanders and Warren would use tariffs in the same way that a president Biden would. You know, I'm interested in that because I've said it a million times on Bloomberg surveillance with my good buddy Tom Kane. Look, there are there exists that populist streak on both sides where they want to do tariffs. My New York friends, Hagar Shamali, Max Burns, and and uh, Charlie Volmer's in the in the booth. I mean, I it's my, I'm in New York. 
I'm a Philly guy who lives in D.C., but today I'm in New York. Thank you both. I'll see you on Thursday, Hagar. Great. Thank you to Jason Greenblatt for that interview and, of course, uh, to you for listening. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com/sbs2024 to learn more.